0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: If you were facilitating a group that was trying to navigate a conflict between expertise and different perspectives, what might you recommend?
2: Self-awareness, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's too far. I need big, something else. Big
1: recommendation yeah. for self-awareness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I
2: know. And uh, next question.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my closet-surrounded co-host, <laughs> Rodney Evans.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Uh, we are also joined today by Dr. Akila Kade, the founder and CEO of Change Kade. Akila, welcome to the show. Thanks for
2: having me, Aaron and Rodney.
0: Today's episode, we're going to talk about systemic injustice and systems design, which has a very interesting connection and parallel. But before we unpack that, we will check in, as we we always do.
1: We always do. And we'll check in (laughs) with our lovely guest.
0: Esteemed guest. Mm.
1: Esteemed guest. So our check-in question for today, which is one of my favorites, is when do you feel like a younger version of your current self?
2: Mm. That's a wonderful question. Thank you for saying I'm your esteemed guest. I showered today, so clearly it's coming through.
0: <laughs> if you get dressed right now in 2021, you're esteemed.
2: I know, right? It's like you are esteemed. You did it. Um, I feel like my younger self. It's it's a close call between my Capri Sun collection and or <gasps> or string cheese. Yeah.
1: I yeah. love it. I would have some. J-
2: those are my snacks of, of choice. I have like at least one Capri on a day.
1: It's amazing. What's your favorite
2: flavor? Pacific Cooler. See how it said it ah, so quickly? But I will so throw in a wild cherry or a strawberry banana. Sometimes Pacific they do organic. Cooler is the right answer, though. It is the right answer. What is your it favorite is. flavor
0: and why is it Pacific Cooler is the way the question should be phrased.
2: That's how the question should be framed. But honestly, it brings me the sense of joy. It reminds me of my childhood. And it's just fun to just take the anger that I may have with dismantling white supremacy and just take that straw and stick it into the hole, you know? Um, and then have all this joy. Nice.
1: (laughs) I love it. it. Aaron, what about you?
0: I think for me, it's probably when I'm out on my little dorky electric scooter, because I have two thoughts that go back to back. One of them is, this is unsafe. You're an adult. This is stupid. Uh And the other is like, ah, the wind in my hair. I'm 16 again. (laughs) And they cancel each other out. So I do it again.
1: I love it. Very relatedly. I have been getting into the habit when I drive to the lake of doing so, windows down, yes, music loud, mm-hmm. for an hour straight. Yes. I just find it's a good way to loosen up before I get there, and it also just makes me feel like a kid. It's like I love getting yeah. stuck in traffic and everyone having to hear my music.
0: Is oh, it hand yeah. out the window slapping the the top of, course, of the car door ever? Because you got to do that if you you're really can't. into it. I mean, why well, have the windows down?
2: As well. <laughs> I tend to prefer the rolling with the homies from Clueless oh, nice. version okay. out the window. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's really important. And I don't want to brag, but I'm going to because self-love. I'm an exquisite car dancer. All and right. I do not care if anyone is confused with what's happening. I'm <laughs> like, it's rhythm. It's rhythm and you probably wish That's I had what's it. happening. Yeah. Car choreography. I'm just, it's my thing. I
0: right.
1: it. That's awesome.
0: Solid question. Okay, so today's topic, now that we're out of that woods, is uh, the overlap between systemic injustice and systems design. And I guess we want to start by asking you if we could get clear on a few terms. So what do we mean when we say systemic injustice? And what do we mean when we say systems design?
2: Yeah. So when we talk about systemic injustice, we're talking about the inequities that happen from a system. Systems are everywhere. Systems are the place you buy coffee. Systems are, you know, the government, school, where we work. And so what is not equal or fair for every person who takes part or benefits or participates in that system? We talk about systems design, We're literally talking about the building blocks of this system and how it's created for whatever that desired outcome is. So more money, opportunity for someone, whatever. Systems design is a big term and it encompasses broad things. So we can talk about social justice that comes in system design. We can talk about environmental planning with systems and diet. We can talk about the social determinants of health. There's so much that comes from the design of a system. And we could literally talk about, you know, how an app is designed. So there's so much (laughs) that comes right from systems design. But it's really important to note when we talk about systems design, who is involved in the process of designing that system? All the same people, different people, you know, and we're talking about different people. Yes. You know, different ethnicities and identities, but also different roles, expertise and live experience. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So just jumping right into the building a system bucket, we, (laughs) we know, I think that we are likely to encounter some, some default archetypes, some default frameworks what do you see as the current default designs? And how do you see that dovetailing with whiteness? Like, how is the supremacist thinking and designing just baked into defaults that maybe we take for granted?
2: Yeah, wonderful question. It's uh, (laughs) white dominant culture or white supremacist thinking is built into every single system, pretty much worldwide, but we can keep it Local, right, to the US. So it's how can white people continually benefit and remain in this place of dominance. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about the best superior supreme, right, this special pedestal in which um, white people receive a benefit from. When we think about the root of white supremacy, it's actually not a bad thing. And, you know, people are like, wait, you're black. Why are you saying this? Well, because it's not a bad thing. It's the way in which someone can drive down the street without getting pulled over, walk into a store and be supported and helped, right? Mm-hmm. Be able to have access to money um, and generational wealth, or be able to get financing without a crazy loan and get the job. And the pro- so there's a lot of great stuff that comes from being part of being the best superior supreme, hence white supremacy. And so that is the main benefit with these systems. And that's why we have this movement of anti-racism, talking about social justice, talking about homophobia. We're talking about all of these things because these are the individuals that don't have that same benefit of the system.
0: And do you find that the patterns of those systems that you just described are equally present in newly born systems are they different like as you look across time and space is there a a morphing or a shifting happening or is it kind of a pattern that just keeps repeating itself
2: I, I did not know I had the power to look like, across time and space. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to think about that tonight. Um, that's part well, of the teleportation we discussed before yeah, the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> teleportation. I was like, is it happening now? <laughs> Can I go to Bora Bora right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's a great question. I would say with newer businesses we're thinking you know some startup companies some 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 be very clear some there is more intentionality around how do we create a culture belonging from the start what are we doing to make sure that we have diverse leadership as we grow opposed to kind of doing it backwards so you know some places that's happening but overall america is white dominant culture white supremacy so autopilot is to go to that benefit right that's there so they can maintain dominance. I right. think over time, I mean I don't I'm not going to see it and I'm I'm okay with it as I as I look out the window and gaze at the fact that I won't see it, but you know there are, there are the generations after us that will see more intentionality in the design of the systems in which they live and work in.
1: So since humans have created this situation that we're in and we've built the companies and the governments and the family structures and the schools and everything else. It stands to reason that human beings are also going to have to build more human, more Jedi supporting systems. Mm -hmm. Are humans only, are we solely responsible for more equitable systems or like, you know, are there sort of building blocks that are inherently supremacist that get in our way, even when we have the best intentions for building more equitable structures?
2: Yes. So, for the listeners, Jedi is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion—not Star Wars. Just <laughs> want to put that out there. A fun fact: You actually can't use Jedi because they were like, "Don't do that." But um, really, <laughs> no, no, you can say it and do it, but like you aren't really supposed to write it out or something. You're—it's weird because it's like, hey, little those copyright are, violation. Yeah, yeah, you know, fun mm, facts that are there. Um. So humans are the ones who are supposed to do this. I mean, humans created racism. I mean, I didn't do that, (laughs) 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 right? Humans created white supremacy. So they should be held accountable for how do we come to a place of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? How can I show up every day, you know, being anti-racist? But Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that white people don't know what they don't know. And that's an inherent in the design of white supremacy, and even when people are doing things to combat it and be anti-racist, they will even, quite people will question themselves as a product of white supremacy because people will feel like the odd one out at times. People may be othered by their family members or friends when they're showing up for, you know, the AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander or mm-hmm. BIPOC person, black, indigenous and people of color, or for the LGBTQ person, they can be othered as a result of doing the right thing. They can be told, like, hey, you're centering yourselves. And sometimes, you know what people are. Hey, that's performative allyship. Hey, that's all of these buzzwords to deter that person, that leader, that company for doing the right thing to be more inclusive towards communities. People say underrepresented, but I like to say intentionally ignored because it's part of the design (laughs) of the system, Mm. right? We're talking disabled people, blah, 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 and list goes on and on. That is the way to deter the action that's needed, the behaviors that are needed to have more equitable places, our mm-hmm. systems, our society, our workplaces, and so forth.
0: Right.
1: So just because you brought up white centering, Akila, and because I learned a lot about this from you, as a disclosure to our audience, I was a part of a cohort of women that Akila coached. And it was an amazing experience. And I learned a ton from her and from my other cohort participants. So can could you just talk a little bit about white centering? Because... I don't think everybody understands it. And I have some questions about white centering versus just generally self-centering that <laughs> maybe I'll also ask you. But yeah, can you just talk a little bit about how what that means and how it shows up?
2: Yeah, for just the record, Rodney was a wonderful participant <laughs> in the cohort and had lots of examples of being anti-racist. Um, and I'm just very proud of you. So white centering is basically when a white person is being told, okay, that's not okay. It was offensive, racist, whatever it is, microaggression, that they will turn the narrative of the story to be about them. Well, that's not what I meant. It was just a joke, or you're taking it out of context, or I have had situations or in college for me, and they're they're not listening. They're not taking it as an opportunity to learn and unlearn from what they may have said or done, right? right? And that experience. So they're centering themselves. Anytime someone who's from an intentionally ignored community is saying, hey, this isn't okay. It's not an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you why it is okay. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's essentially what centering is. That's the opportunity for the person to say, like, I was unaware of that. You know, I didn't realize that that hurt. I apologize. I'm learning and unlearning. whatever. That's what should happen is to move away from white centering. Now, Go ahead and ask me the follow-up question because you want to ask about I just do. general centering. Okay, go. Yeah,
1: because this is a thing that I learned about in your cohort, but not till afterward when I was thinking about it, which is just um, how how much white people tend to be self-centered and just like take up a lot of space and make things about them and bring the narrative back to them. And I I always thought of that as an attribute of an individual mm. until I studied with you and started to be like, oh, that's an attribute that I share with white people. That's mm-hmm. not a thing I was aware of. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if, if that is a correct insight from your perspective, but it's one that I had later and wanted to ask you about. Yeah. I mean,
2: overall, it's like a product still, a design of the, the system of, of white supremacy, right? Because if you think about it, the way white people grow up, it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. And Mm. here's what you're going to do. And this is handed to you, or you aren't going to have this experience that's traumatizing. doesn't mean, you know, shit can't go down and things can't happen. But ultimately that's what happens again, the product and design of white supremacy, the system um, of white supremacy. So when someone is saying, Hey, I'm going to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. And there's been very little or minimal opportunities for accountability then people just go inward. right? people go inward for themselves. So think about bros, right? Or Brotopia, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the white guys, right? Bro, At bro, bro. I mean, bro, bro, Hey, yeah, nailed it. Um, so, and then I just think of like a Bluetooth headset and just like all the douchey <laughs> things like, <laughs> it, like come into play. But so when that one white guy is held accountable for something, and it could be tiny and minor they may overreact because they have never been told no. Mm-hmm. Never been told no. Maybe they played football and did all this stuff and they didn't have to turn their papers and someone else, they were never told no, right? You know, um, even from parents, like, no, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to, I want to fail out of school or I need money. And it's like, well, here you go. So everything's like, yes, yes, yes. And this is an exaggeration. But essentially, if no one's ever told no or held accountable, that's why you'll see really hard centering. That's why we call it white centering. they will go back into themselves. It's like, mm-hmm. why are you telling me about myself? Because no one has told me about myself. So I'm going to tell you about myself. That's literally what's happening, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what's coming out in those situations. Now, the other, some of your listeners might say like, well, I've been practicing yoga and I've been meditating and told to center myself. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. Do that. There's nothing wrong with that. You're finding peace, your voice, you're thinking about whatever you need to do. That part is okay. The only way, the differentiation between like just general centering where you're kind of taking care of yourself and self-care and white centering is- any time, again, you're learning, you have that opportunity to learn from someone from that lived experience you don't have, that's when you have to stop and actually center them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What's happening for you? How do you, I didn't think about that. And that is how someone can learn and unlearn.
0: That makes sense. Because it does feel like the the broader cultural narrative is very individualistic. And so that's just the default. And then if that's the only tool in the toolkit, then that's the only move you've got. Mm-hmm. And I am definitely thinking of like, major political figures saying things like, I have lots of black friends, or I have binders full of women. Things that are basically trying to explain away in that in that exact same way. So that that definitely tracks.
2: I do have white friends. I want to be very clear about that. (laughs) And if people are gonna judge me for my white friends, I can accept it.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. So I am curious how this gets baked in, because if we talk about systems design, my ears perk up. And when we think about supremacist ideology into an inanimate thing, a structure, a design, a process, a, a business. What does that design journey look like? How does it animate the inanimate?
2: Yeah. So some people may not know this, but I, I did a whole year-long program in human-centered design, and it was great, and it was fun because I'm a nerd. But when we think about design, it is what is the benefit mm-hmm. of this thing, the space, this place, this rule, this policy, this company? What is the benefit of that? It really should be, what's the benefit for the greater good and for everyone? But in actuality, that is not the case. And so if we think about what's happening with this system overall, what can we do to be more inclusive? That's a time to pause. Like, who's at the table for this conversation? For creating this company or introducing this new product or doing whatever. Who's at the table? Do we all? There's this weird thing called eyes that some people may have heard of. So if you (laughs) use eyes, right, and you're looking around, you're like, wait, we have no women here. It's just a whole bunch of white guys. Mm. Where is that opportunity? Where's that trigger? Where's that light bulb that comes on to say like, hey, this isn't the right group. We need to go back to the drawing board to bring in the right individuals. Because people are like, well, that's just the system. The system was created by people. right? <laughs> so you have to make sure you have the right people there. So using this high-tech system called eyes, you can bring in women. You can bring in the A person. You can bring in the AAPI person. You can bring in the receptionist. You can bring in mm-hmm. all these different types of individuals to get to the next level of where to go there's another step that's called a process. And so people can write down a process to say like, if we are introducing this thing or creating this thing, this is the process we have to follow X percentage of this X percentage of that, whatever. And that builds the accountability of the system.
0: I think where my mind goes from there is how do you parse or navigate the difference between the different perspectives and lived experiences and stories that that need to be present in order to design something in an inclusive way, in an equitable way, and the idea of expertise. So as an example, let's say we're designing the restrooms at Disneyland. There are probably people who have studied, you know, human factors and flow of traffic and timetables and, you know, plumbing and a bunch of other things that would inform what a quote unquote correct bathroom configuration might be. And then there are all these perspectives that haven't been considered because that very expertise was kind of born out of a particular system. How do you disentangle that? Or how would you, if you were facilitating a group that was trying to navigate a conflict between expertise and different perspectives, what might you recommend?
2: Self-awareness, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's too far. I need big, something else. Big
1: recommendation yeah. for self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, I
2: know. And uh, next question. Yeah, no. <laughs> The self-awareness part is really important. I'm so glad you brought up bathrooms. So <laughs> this is going to blow some people's minds away. Um, Let's do it. If if you were to go into an institution, restaurant, office space, and look at the men's bathrooms versus the women's bathrooms, you will see the men have larger bathrooms than women. Mm-hmm. Which makes no sense because you there's more efficiency in urinals opposed to stalls.
0: We take less time.
2: You Right. Well, you know. We have other things going on. Not so, all. Yeah. <laughs> but that is because men are designing the space. Yes. And they think of themselves. So they're like, we need the larger bathroom. Not realizing <laughs> that that bathroom, the men's bathroom, could have had two more additional stalls or three more additional stalls to yes. help with the fact that women are always waiting in line.
0: And anyone who's ever gone to the theater with their spouse during intermission hates the men that designed those bathrooms.
1: Mm-hmm. I had oh, no yeah. idea that this was true. Yeah, it's very
2: very true. So I'm a twin and (laughs) it's really important for the world to know that. But my twin is a a principal and a a licensed architect of a very big firm. Mm. And so she brought that up to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so true. It's so true. And I've had friends who have, opened establishments who are men. And I'm like, you know, you you did this. Why did you do this to us? Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why did you do this to me? And so again, if we have that self-awareness of like, wait a minute, we don't need as many stalls. How can we check ourselves? How can we hold ourselves, hold ourselves accountable with, you know, the privilege that we have or the bias, checking our bias, what we have. What if we take a step back? Why wasn't there a woman That was brought in as an architect to design that space Mm -hmm. or, you know, brought into the table. Or did they ask the firm, they have a woman to like, does this look right to you? Mm -hmm. Opposed to stuff that's centered around men or centered around whiteness or centered around ability. Right. So I'm a disabled person. Sometimes I use a cane. I will tell you. America does not care, <laughs> you know, of of being ADA compliant. So there's a policy, right. there's something that's in place there, but still, you know, they're not following stuff because it's like ah, that's not many of us and you know, I care more about the white guys experience here. Not that there should be, you know, a ramp or access to or maybe that the stairs are at the right, you know, level so that if someone is using a cane, they won't you can fall or feel uncomfortable or unsafe. Mm-hmm. And so that self-awareness is really important because it's how do I partner? Who do I bring in? How do I check myself, uh, my bias, how to check my privilege?
1: And related to that, assuming that you have the right people at the table, or at least a representative group of people at the table, in, in institutions or companies or decision-making meetings that inherently have some of these defaults of white supremacy. What are some moves to make sure that people who say have a disability or are women or are people of color can can speak up in that, in that setting or in that conversation and be like, hey, bro, too many stalls for you. Let's let's get that mixed up. Cause because certainly, you know, this self-awareness to be aware of biases and having people in the room are super important parts of that equation. And then I'm like, okay, cool. How do you then also have the safety for people to Disagree or just, you know, provoke?
2: Mm-hmm. Great question. It's a few things. One, it's it's setting ground rules. So, what are the ground rules here? How are we going to be able to know this is a, a safe space for some people, a brave space? How do we know that we're not going to talk over people or what we're talking about is going to stay in this room? But really setting those expectations and always allowing for an opportunity to so say, like, hey, remember, these are the ground rules that we've set. And if we need to add to it at any time, let us know. Mm-hmm. Making that clear and accessible. So that's one way. The other is, um, well, I guess maybe I have not created a culture of belonging at this business because there's a high probability that there's someone who's disabled. There's someone who has a different lived experience. and There's someone who's going to school to study for the thing. There's, you know, that's out there. So that means as leaders, they haven't role modeled the behavior of getting to know people. Mm. Of practicing learning and unlearning, having difficult conversations, crucial conversations, or you know, having what um, uh, we call below the iceberg conversations. Mm-hmm. So, if you think about culture as an iceberg, ten percent the part above the water, which we think is really big, isn't the big part. Ninety percent of the iceberg is under the water. So, ten percent are the things that we know, like oh, people can hear that I have you know, um, and maybe a California accent because I'm a valley girl. Right. Um, so that can like toads come out. Um, so they can hear that, you know, and then they're like, oh, she speaks English or, you know, she appears to look like a woman. So you can figure that stuff out. But when we go below the water, there's so much more that people can't see. So my disability is invisible. So I have to communicate. I have a disability. I'm not always with my twin. So I have to communicate. I have a twin, right? That also goes to socioeconomic status, partner status, education level. There's so much that goes into it so what is happening for leaders to have the below the iceberg conversations with their team so they know in their self-awareness who to bring in for an ideation session and then the third thing is what are your policies and practices for ideation innovation prototyping product development whatever spectrum that they're on to make sure that process is inclusive i coach and work with a lot of beauty brands Mm -hmm. And what a lot of beauty brands will do is they'll launch this product, but it doesn't work with deeper complexions. Mm. So that was a missed opportunity because if you had someone with a deeper complexion on that process, then they could have made sure that that line was inclusive.
0: It's baffling how long this takes too. I was actually just walking through a Target the other day and saw for the first time on the end cap band-aids in different colors. Mm -hmm. And it was like... It, it's almost like wheels on a suitcase to me. Like, it took this long to figure out that we could just put wheels on these things. Mm-hmm. And it took this long to realize that there are whole markets that we're not serving with Band-Aids. But mm-hmm. I guess it did.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a certain time in the winter where I can use the fabric Band-Aid when it matches my, my skin tone. But, you know, the interesting thing about that... Band-Aid is a, a very good example is that bandages have been around for a while and they've had different complexions on there. Mm. And so now that Band-Aid is doing it, they're taking business away from bandages, which oh, is a, a black owned company. And so part of it is like, you know, are they partnering? How could that happen? I don't know. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes there. Same thing when we're thinking about product design, same thing for nude tones, makeup, mm. nude tones, right? Nude tones are for white people. Mm right? But nudes are actually more (laughs) than just one color. And so that's why you have lingerie brands and shoe brands that have a spectrum, you know, a full inclusive spectrum of different shades of nudes to be inclusive. Mm.
1: That's so (laughs) wild. Also, just just going back to the beginning of this conversation about the ways in which defaults are white supremacists in nature. Like, Literally, I've never thought before this very moment about the fact that when I buy a bra on the Internet and I choose the color nude, it is for a white person.
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
1: But like. Nude means naked. <laughs> nude means without something on it, mm-hmm. which could be so many other shades. Mm-hmm. That's wild. That shit is everywhere, man. Yeah. yeah which is why I mean, we, as you, as you obviously I'm, know I'm, and, well, you know, I, have dedicated I have your life to just yeah. a little
2: little bit of experience there. But um, <laughs> that's, crazy. that's why, you know, I would get cartoon bandages mm-hmm. full on adults because I'm like, well, you know, I can't have this incognito nude band aid like you. So you're going to see SpongeBob SquarePants.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm with you for what it's worth.
2: I mean, it's great.
0: So something that is uh, especially important to me is the question of can an organization itself be anti-racist or does it have to be comprised of anti-racist humans? Which is really a question about like principles and values at different scales or, uh, you know, at different levels of abstraction. And so how do you think about how those things dovetail, support each other? Is there hope?
2: Ooh, no, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Obviously, there's hope. I'm gainfully employed, so. Um. Yes. <laughs> right, there's that. It always comes down on the humans. Mm-hmm. Because the humans make the system happen. Right? Because they're practicing the policy, the procedure, they're doing the thing, they're doing the work of the system. The system can be changed only by people. Right. Right? So people have to be anti-racist. The system or the company can hold them accountable if they aren't being anti-racist, if that's the stance they took. But here's the plot twist. Lots of companies don't want to say that they're anti-racist. That also upholds values of white supremacy. That upholds white dominant culture. They're like, hey, we just want to focus on belonging, or hey, we just want Mm -hmm. to focus on diversity and inclusion, or we're really into like justice. So we're going to get into environmental justice, you know, (laughs) and like that's the thing that we're going to do. And so those systems, those companies have to ask themselves, why do you not want to be anti racist? Tell Mm -hmm. me what's wrong with being anti racist and having that expectation for anyone who works, you know, within that company.
0: So, how do you feel then about the resilience of a system against incoming folks that maybe are not as educated or aware or or frankly just conscientious about this stuff in a system where the, the folks that did create it were really deliberate and the agreements and the policies and the principles are kind of built to protect these these ideas of mm-hmm. of equity and inclusion and and diversity? do you feel like there's then some resilience if the system is really bought in and has deep roots? Or do you feel like you can't let those sorts of folks in? Or how do you think about the, the membrane around an organization that's trying to protect these ideas, but knows that not everyone coming in the door is going to show up fully ready to play?
2: So a system or company that's chosen to be anti-racist, that person wouldn't be hired. Yeah, so, (laughs) but if they want to be into performative advocacy, activism, they'll hire that person, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And then we know it's for show.
0: Right.
1: And because I know you're in a lot of these rooms, and we had an interesting conversation once just about, I was surprised at the level, you know, naively surprised at the level of pushback you have gotten when you've talked about just, being explicit about being anti-racist. When leaders in companies say like, yeah, no, I think it's environmental justice for us. Thank you. What's the rationale? Like why? What's wrong with saying you're anti-racist if you're running a company? Like why won't, why don't people want to do that?
2: Because then they feel that they're being called racist.
1: So it's like we were racist before and now we're anti-racist and we don't mm-hmm. want to admit to have been mm-hmm. racist. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah, yeah. So why people get stuck where it's a pain point, two places. One, saying the term white supremacy and two, being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're saying white supremacy and you're a white person, then you're like, wait, but I there's benefits for me. I kind of... I, I like, I like, I like how 4th of July just used to be this wonderful time, you know, like, that's <laughs> what it goes to. And, you know, for the records, you can celebrate the 4th of July, I just realized, it's like, my people weren't free. And also, 4th of July is for heterosexual, cisgender, white privileged men. But that's just me and the rest of the world. So, you know, th- there's that feeling. And then with being anti-racist, it's like, well, then that means I was or the company was mm. racist before. Mm-hmm. And maybe... I don't know, maybe, but I've never heard a good argument for not being anti-racist. Yeah. So for the listeners, anti-racist just means that there's an opportunity for people to have humanity and equality. Yeah. That's that's yeah. all that it is. And so if someone's saying they don't want to be anti-racist, it's like, oh, so you don't you don't want me to have humanity and equality? <laughs> right. You want to pay me all this money <laughs> to help me? Okay, well, that's a bit of a, oh performative action, Mm -hmm. performative allyship, right? That's happening. So ultimately, everyone should be on a path to becoming anti-racist. And the companies that I work with that get there, they're doing the work. They understand it's going to take time. And they have to work through these various systems within their system and then the vendors and the partners and all this other stuff to make that change. But they're committed to doing it and taking that journey.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely... Right. And I, I, I can see that kind of psychological break happening. I also think there's another fear, maybe a secondary fear, possibly an excuse as well, which is CEOs in this media climate, in this polarization climate, worrying about the health of their business if they align with something that is, for some very stupid reasons, very politicized. And so the idea of like, yeah, if I'm Walmart and I come out and say that, do I actually lose customers? I think is an actual boardroom conversation, even if it's an excuse or a dodge for the real conversation.
2: Yeah, I mean I've had that conversation several times and <laughs> the the answer is the same. It's it's not a sensitive issue, it's not mm-hmm. a political issue, it's a humanity issue. So tell me your argument for not having humanity equality for black people, please. Mm-hmm please tell me, you know, that's, that's where I go with it. Yeah. You know, why again, why do you not believe in my humanity and equality? And also you want money from racists? Tell me more about that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's really fucked up, but I would say that the same narrative flow happens around the environment. Like, mm -hmm. you you know, they will poison the river for shareholder value. They will Mm -hmm. absolutely take racist money for shareholder value. Like capitalism is the religion.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. It's wild.
2: Yeah. So I live in Oakland, California, and there's two main freeways here, 880 and 580. 580 is in the hills. 580 is where there's more of uh, the multi-million and million-dollar homes, the redwoods. We have so many parks and stuff by, above 580. 880 is lower. It's closer to the water. Mm. And that is where everyone knows the places of Oakland. So you have like, you have West Oakland, you have East Oakland, you have all, you know, people view Oakland as, this is nothing but crime, but Oakland is so much more than that. And I bring this up because 880 is the only freeway that can have trucks on it.
0: Mm.
2: Big rigs. 580, they can't, for a certain part of 580, they cannot go. On the freeway. And that's because they have more pollution, more exhaust, the diesel fuel. So that goes into BIPOC communities. Right. Right. And there's warehouses and stuff along the way, and it goes to the port of Oakland. I think we're the fifth largest port or something like that. So it goes there. Now, the reason why 580 doesn't have trucks is that Mills College, a private college here, they wanted to build in Oakland, but like, we don't want trucks because it was right by five, but we don't want big trucks because we want our beautiful campus to stay beautiful and blah, 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 blah. So the city of Oakland was like, okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? And that's a systems design of things mm-hmm. centered around capitalism because they wanted the school because what? It creates more jobs, brings more money into the city. Yep. And me, someone who has health issues, I live by 580. I'm in the hills
0: mm-hmm.
2: because I need to be in a safe space, but I have the privilege to benefit mm-hmm. from that system That's there. And there's other people who don't have that privilege because more affordable homes and housing are on the other side.
1: So interesting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere we look. So as you, in your work, with companies. So you do this work all over the place with companies, large and small, helping them to become anti-racist, whether they want to call it that or not. How do you approach this work? And at what size do you think it's possible to adopt different practices? At what scale does it just start to fall apart? I'd love to just hear a little bit about your work with companies and, and what the moves are.
2: Yeah, totally. So we work primarily in four areas. We have four pillars. So it comes in with strategy. And strategy can mean an audit. It could mean that we're conducting a full-scale survey, focus groups. We're looking at policies, practices, procedures to help them come up with a strategy or diversity roadmap or, or change, restructuring, whatever it may be. The second pillar we have is where I get to fix shit, which I love. And that's where I get to be the Olivia Pope of diversity in the workplace. And that's crisis management and crisis recovery. So, you know, a company did something internally or externally or both. And they're like, what do we do? And, mm-hmm. you know, we come in, in there and fix it. The third pillar we have is executive coaching. And so we coach leaders because leaders have the most power. And when leaders have the most power, they can make the most change. So we coach leaders specifically with a change and maybe a strategy, maybe their attitude, behavior, maybe education of terms like white centering and so forth. But we work with them individually in those groups. And then the fourth pillar is I just talk a lot. I'm talking to you right now. We do workshops, keynote talks. I'll talk about my lived experience so people can learn and unlearn. So that's pretty much how we work with clients. Now, there's you know, size, in fact, it does not matter when it comes to <laughs> being an anti-racist company or <laughs> developing a diversity strategy, because again, it's just you may have more layers of leadership, but it's all about building in accountability, communication and transparency. So we focus on how can companies act? How can systems act? How can leaders act? Accountability, communication, transparency. And that trickles down, learning and unlearning, apologizing, making mistakes, being able to have crucial conversations, developing strategies for social media. How do we change our hiring pipeline to be more inclusive? What are we doing for retention for these intentionally ignored communities? How are we making sure everyone feels like they belong and that they can communicate their needs effectively? So anyone can get there as long as the highest level of leadership is engaged and invested in the work. If they are not, It doesn't matter the size. It could be 10 people. It could be a hundred thousand people. It won't happen.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And what I want to ask you about is also your style. Hmm. So that was helpful to understand some of the mechanics. And I thought a lot about your style because we do coaching and facilitation as well. And I'm rarely coached and facilitated by someone who I enjoy being facilitated by as I did by you. And so I feel like my experience of working with you as a coach of a group was like, you take this work incredibly seriously. It is obviously your life's work. And also you like have humor about it and lightness about it that makes it very possible to engage in a way that feels like quite safe. And I found in moments like where you would nudge me to a thing or be like, there's a better way to say that or whatever, I didn't ever have a charge that was like, Oh, fuck. Like, I Mm. did that wrong, or I now I'm ashamed, or I'm not going to try again, or anything like that. And, like, I think a lot of that is because of how you interact with people. And so, I'm just, I wanted to like share that with you and just get your perspective. How much of that is like, intentional and moves that you've cultivated over time to keep people in work that can often be uncomfortable and how much of that is just like who you are as a person and so just happens naturally
2: this is where I like to thank major depressive disorder for (laughs) (laughs) helping me use humor um so I do this selfishly for myself by bringing in humor because this work is incredibly traumatizing. The things I hear and see that happen directly to me or to the the people in the company aren't, are not okay. It's, mm. it's not, it's, this is not glamorous work. I will put that out there. Mm-hmm. I do like the swag though. I do like the swag. But so I, I I do that intentionally. Second part of the like the disability I have is that my body thinks it's having a heart attack every day. And so I live with the symptoms of a heart attack. And so, so that's not fun. So I literally can't have stress. And then Beyonce and Oprah, those are my gods. We're like, this is the work you're going to do. And I was like, but I could die. And they're like, yeah, but just use humor. It'll be fine. And so that's what I do it. I, I use humor so that I I can keep my stress levels down. But I also use humor because that provides a place of comfort, mm-hmm. trust, And realizing if they can see that I can kind of laugh through something that is awkward and uncomfortable because I'm comfortable being uncomfortable, that they can do the same thing. Uh They can come to me with things that they may not feel safe going to another Black person or BIPOC person. And they can feel as if, no matter what they say or do, that I'm not going to judge them. Uh So it's really important to note, again, that white people don't know what they don't know. So why am I going to be mad at you? That's the system of white supremacy. So if you have an opportunity to role model to me that they're willing to listen, learn, and unlearn, I don't take that for granted. Mm. Because it will make someone else's life better as a result. And so that's why I mix humor into it. I like to think that I'm probably one of the best diversity, you know, experts in the world. And that's because I come from a place of compassion, humanity and empathy, because I have to lead with that for myself first. So because I'm all centered in accountability, communication and transparency, my clients know I have a disability, my clients know that I may have just come out of the emergency room. You know, I role model that behavior. But part of that behavior is adding the humor, adding the safe space, setting expectations, acknowledging mistakes, encouraging people to just keep going, because I have to do the same for myself.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's really interesting that this came up, because you know, we've talked recently about how there seems to be these different strata of experts and expertise and styles in this space. And there are certainly the uninitiated and the uninformed and how, how they show up in the world. And there are certainly people that have great mastery in this space. And one of the patterns that, uh, that I think maybe Rodney, you're the first one to mention this, but one of the patterns we've noticed is they hold the work with more lightness and more invitation and more humor and more curiosity than the middle strata, which is sort of like the woke Twitter mob that has just zero (laughs) tolerance, right? And zero openness and zero humor. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that too, why you think that is and how maybe we, what could we do to try to extend that into the world? Is that just more mastery required or are there other things we can do to shift that style and that narrative?
2: I mean, it's a, a great question. There's, you know, some educators, activists, experts that come from the place of anger and rage and frustration, which I totally get. Yeah. I totally get. I And I absolutely understand. And there's people who resonate and connect with that, which is fine. I personally believe in, you know, moving away from cancel culture, calling out to calling in. How can we provide an opportunity for someone to learn, right, and unlearn? How can we collectively have shared accountability how can they understand their accountability how can they take their um, mistake and turn it into action and I think that part is is important but along with you know some people who may come from a place of anger there are other experts that come from a place of prescription mm-hmm. you have to follow X Y and Z to get to anti-racism yep and there's no formula for that because that discredits the human design. It discredits <laughs> human behavior, right? Because there are, you know, there can be a company that has a head of diversity and a structure and a plan. So maybe it'll be able to move forward, but their CEO may not be on board. So right. how are you going to use the, that prescription doesn't work, but there can be a company that doesn't even have a head of diversity and they outsource their HR, but their CEO is involved. So they're going to take it to the next level. And so we take the time to get to know our clients. We take the time to set, and we set this expectation this is a reciprocal relationship. You know, we're going to high five each other. We're going to push each other. I'm going to learn from you and you're going to learn from me. We're going to do this together,
1: you Mm -hmm. know, and,
2: and, in that, that's how we're able to have really wonderful conversations, transparency for them to, you know, contact me when there's an emergency and feel safe doing that because that is how you create change. When something's prescriptive or maybe forced, people can regress. Mm-hmm. And a benefit of the system of white supremacy is to pause, mm-hmm. to be in a place of comfort. And if that person's like, "Oh my God, I'll never say that again." That was awful, blah, blah blah. you know, then they're not going to be in a situation where they say, like, "Hey, I don't know what just happened here, but let's pause this conversation or, I need to do some research on this. Can I get back to you? to feel comfortable to do those things?" Mm-hmm. So we really take the time to to get to know people and honestly practice what we preach.
0: I find the the dogma of the one right way in DEI work to be funny and ironic because it's so white.
2: It, it is. It <laughs> honestly, really, really is. Because if you think about it, well, since we're getting down into it, uh, it's centered on the consultant, right? Because the consultant can say, "Well, we and you both know this. We walked you through this process, so it's on you, you know." But I did my part, you know, like oh, well, you know. So it's like I worked with this company and we did X, Y, and Z thing, but. There's really more benefit of change, which is why it's in the name of my business. Okay, so here we are. We're at this part. Ooh, actually, this thing came up in the survey. So we actually need a pivot. I know we have a scope of work, but mm-hmm. this would give you more benefit, right? You can't do that with a prescription, and you can't do that with with yelling at someone.
1: So much overlap in, in the way that you approach this work and the way that we approach this work in that, you know, in addition to it being more emergent and and being more conscious of the complexities of systems of human beings, it's also shared ownership. Whether it's a, a DEI consultant or an org designer that comes in and says, well, my framework is fucking awesome. You guys just didn't use it right. It's like, well, who cares if nothing happened and nothing changed and the client didn't evolve in any way, it doesn't really matter how good the framework is or how good the (laughs) consultant is, or how right we feel like we were. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I I just think I think all of that is true. Plus, I would just hit the note of like stickiness, you know, if we want clients to own becoming evolutionary orgs, as we do, it has to be theirs. Like it, I always say to clients, I can't care about this more than you do.
2: Right? Yeah. You know, and if they don't, that's that's their decision. I've had that conversation several times. It's like, okay, well, you know, if you can't do X, Y, and Z things, you have to understand that you are being performative mm. and you also have to communicate to your staff because it's always a big thing. Dr. Kade is here. <laughs> we have changed today. I'm at the team meeting. I'm, you know, waving. I'm on Instagram. I'm doing all these things. And, you know, if they're like, oof, that we're not ready for this, then they have to Role model, accountability, communication, transparency, ensure that. Hey, we are not ready to do this, so we're going to pause the work that we're doing right now. We're going to circle back at this time period because it's come to our attention we do X, Y, and Z. You know, otherwise they're creating more and more of a problem.
1: The last thing that we want to ask you about before you get back to your day is about allyship. So mm-hmm. you have talked very publicly about the fact that. Allyship will not actually help dismantle systemic injustice and supremacist ideology. So can you talk a little bit about becoming an accomplice and why that is necessary?
2: Yeah. In order to talk about an accomplice, I have to talk about why I think allyship is a waste of time. Um, (laughs) So allyship is the start It is the pathway to becoming an accomplice. And an allyship is learning how to use your voice and your privilege when it matters, advocating for the least represented in the room, and, you know, signing up to do some stuff, which I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. But allyship allows for pause and comfort. So again, you know, 4th of July. Wait, what? No, Mm. no, no. Don't take away my 4th of July. Ah, I can't. I've done all I can do. I've done, like, I'm just going to every year donate to the, you know, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and uh, that'll be my jam. That will be it you know, it's not going to be how I'm showing up in a cafe or how I'm showing up in the workplace because it was, it was too far. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I encourage people to only use allyship as the training wheels on the anti-racism bike. So think about that. <laughs> so allyship, being those training wheels, you're learning how to build the muscle of being an accomplice or an advocate. An accomplice is someone who looks at their own privilege and their bias. They're checking it daily. It's as routine as brushing teeth and putting on deodorant you know, it's a daily practice and they're showing up in big and small ways of like, okay, I see this. It's a systemic issue here. I see that I can use my privilege here to change this situation. I can show up in a way to move towards humanity and equality for all. And that is daily practice. So those allyship training wheels on the anti-racism bike because an accomplice is anti-racist. It's giving that person the power to lean into being comfortable, being uncomfortable, learning how to practice to make mistakes, learning how to apologize, learning all those things. and then they get to the point where they're like, you know what these these allyship training wheels gotta go because mm-hmm. I'm ready to learn how to do a wheelie, right on my bike. And that is why being an accomplice is an important part of humanity and equality for all. This is the same individual who can say like, okay, well, this thing is happening in America, but I also see the same pattern happening in South America. I see the same pattern happening over here, over there, and they can see how the system of white supremacy and white dominant culture pops up. And then they're holding themselves and others accountable.
0: Well, on that note, the idea of being an accomplice to the anti-racism heist, that sounds really, you know, enlivening, but also like an important challenge for everyone to go sit with. So it also seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. Akila, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Because there is a lot more.
2: There is. You can go to my website. There's a whole resources tab there, events that are listed there at change, the word change, and Cadet, like cadet, C A D E T dot com. Or you can follow me on any social media channel at Change Cadet. I'm the most active on Instagram. So you can come there. I do encourage people if they have questions, they're welcome to DM me. I'll get back to you because I have boundaries. I'll get back <laughs> to you. <laughs> I will get back to you with what questions may come up. But really, to, you know, share any recommendations you have for single men because I'm <laughs> single. So, you know, send them and the slide in my DMs or send a profile. Or send my profile <laughs> to them. I mean, swiping is not fun in a pandemic. So I was like, I might as well just put it out there. Um, yeah. You never know.
0: So you don't know if you don't ask.
1: <laughs> one, one never knows. I love it. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, we would love a review or forward our show to someone who needs to become a better accomplice. Akilah, thank you so much for coming today.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Rodney. This is honestly too much fun. And I'm I'm going to be thinking about the fun for the rest of the day. So (laughs)
0: thanks for this. A uh, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making all three of us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We read them. We reply. We forward them to our mothers. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.